This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. You can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Oh, a magnificent goal from Darren Huckabee! Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? It's Series 9, it's Episode 5. I'm Chris Skull. Joining me, as always, Josh Widdicombe's here. Hello. And here's a man who would never be invited on Dean Holdsworth's stag doing a million years. It's Michael Maud. Hello. Yeah, if you got the invite in the post, would you go? Yeah, of course. Yes, of course. Well, out of the blue, if you didn't even know Dean Holdsworth. Yeah. Yes, but I'd be fucking terrified. <laughs> I'd go, because you'd have to go if I was free. I wouldn't cancel anything else. But I would not be looking forward to it in any way. And I'd definitely have a drink before I arrived. You wouldn't cancel? There must be some level of social engagement that you would cancel to go on Dean Holdsworth's yeah, stag. Neil Ardley's stag. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the topic of uh, my friend Mark Lamar, he did reply to our tweet, didn't he? Uh, yeah. Yes. So we tweeted out uh, so many unanswered questions and someone tagged him in and he said they wouldn't be unanswered if I told you or something like that. Yeah, so the mystery continues. It rolls along. The mystery continues. A couple of people going genuinely quite angry that we uh, are surprised by this because they're going, 90s was the time when showbiz and football intersected. And you're like, yeah, I buy that, but watch the documentary. They're then two very different worlds, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, I just thought to myself then, was the 90s that random? Were random collections of people hanging out together? And the first thing I thought of was uh, Jerry Halliwell and Nelson Mandela. So, yes. Yeah, but Jerry Halliwell and Nelson Mandela were hanging out in a pre-arranged photo shoot. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Lamar, Jerry Halliwell wasn't didn't go on Nelson Mandela's stag to. <laughs> if if she had under the raid, if you were watching, it should, be on, Winnie's about, hen. It should yeah. be on Winnie's head. Should be on Winnie's head. Well, you know, I think that's she's quite a discredited person these days. <laughs> what Jerry um, Halliwell? Lovely. <laughs> 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 Since she married Christian Horner. <laughs> 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 I'm just, I'm just not into Formula One. <laughs> um, 
if you were watching a documentary about Nelson Mandela and apropos of nothing, a social engagement turned up with him and Jerry Halliwell, I think that would be more surprising. So, uh, Chris, have you yeah. got any 90s o'clock news? Yes, I have. From the headquarters of ITN, News at 10, with Chris Scull. Our top story today, Michael knocked from the Meat Management Awards. Oh, no. <laughs> and more Shilton penalty saves emerge. I, I, I've sprung this on you, Michael, but I really, I think we need to talk about it. This is your story. On the Nineties Clock News, I'm now passing over to our roving reporter who's on the scene. So, yeah, uh, a couple of episodes ago, I think, we, we found out that uh, Kevin Keegan was hosting the Meat Management Awards, and I said on the show, and I can't remember whether this made the edit in the end or not, because, uh, well, you'll find out why. I said I was gonna. I said I was gonna go. Basically, uh, so immediately after that recording, I booked a ticket for the Meat Management Awards. I think somewhere in the region of two hundred pounds. Booked a train ticket to Birmingham. Booked a hotel. Booked a train yeah. ticket. Bo- oh. bo- booked a hotel in the hotel that it was hosted at for sort of oh, ease. No. And then to the- roll back into bed at two a.m. Yeah, get <laughs> a barbecue. Covered in offal, and I um, obviously put it on the group that I was going. It's like so excited. This is the best thing that's ever going to happen. And then the next day I had a missed call from someone at the Meat Management Awards and it was an answer phone message. And it was like, hello, uh, Mr. Marden, this is so-and-so. This, uh, from this the is Terry McDermott. <laughs> from the Meat Management Awards. We just wanted to get in touch about your ticket. I was like, oh, that's weird. I'm not answering that. Absolutely not. And then about two hours later, I got an email saying, um, yeah, hi there. We're, um, we're terribly sorry, but um, the event is sold out, so uh, we won't be able to honour your ticket. And it, then it was cancelled. Now... I, I smell a rat here because a a barbecued rat. <laughs> I don't think I'm a little rotisserie. I don't think the meat management awards is or was sold out. I don't believe it. I know Kevin Keegan's got some pull. I think they know because it's Kevin Keegan, they're going to bring some people in that aren't part of the meat management awards, and they don't want that crowd. So I think she's checked and looked because i had to put like my the business name and that well, you, were you know going what the for. first the first flag of it is no one's going to the meat management awards oh, no, so. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i thought that you needed to book a table do you know what i mean you're not nominated yeah you're going solo <laughs> well i thought about reapplying the next day under a different name uh, but buying a whole table just just to see if it was still available and whether it was a, a lie or a ruse on, on their part. But I think they've yeah. probably got wind that people who aren't part of the meat management aren't be coming along and they, they just don't yeah. want that crowd. They've so, got your fa- They've given you a picture of you to the bouncer and said, do not admit this man, <laughs> even if he's dressed as a butcher. <laughs> so sadly, there is no on-location uh, report from... Well, if you, if you are part of the meat industry... Um, how do you sleep at night? No, if you are part of the meat industry, then, um, to, then uh, do um, tell us uh, if you're going and do report back. We'd love well, to it's, hap- it's happened. It's, it's happened. Been, it's right, happened. September. Well, if you were part of the meat industry, well, I mean, if you still are part, but you went, then do tell us. I just think these things are happening all the time. I'm surprised this has blown up. I think football managers like Kevin Keegan are doing corporate events all the time that we don't know about. It's just we've stumbled on this. So if anyone else is aware of any of these events hosted by Keegan or his ilk, 
please do let us know because we'd love to try and go along. And um, congratulations to the co-op for winning best bacon product for their <laughs> maple cured streaky bacon. Well done. Well done. Well um, done. Uh, in other news, thank you to Stu's footy flashbacks. He's uh, contacted me on Twitter to say he's unearthed five more penalty saves from Shilton over the 80s and 90s what? for a collection of football clubs, including Southampton, Derby, and the mighty Plymouth Argyle. Wow. I just sent you the uh, the link. Well, that's that's interesting you say that because, and I'm not someone who wants to come in defence of Shilton, but someone sent us a video, a Derby fan, of Shilton saving two penalties from Dwight York in the same match. What? Have a look at some of these saves. They're, they're, they're acrobatic saves. The, the, the second one, which I think uh, against Cooper at Loftus Road. Oh, that's seems, a great penalty save. He seems to be getting... Oh. Are we going to are we gonna have to swallow our words? That's sensational. <laughs> That first one's one of the greatest penalty saves I've ever seen. That second yeah, the second fine. one he seems to be guessing as well. He seems to guess. Yeah, he does seem to go early on that second one. Yeah. Oh, great penalty save, the third one. Do we do we need to issue an apology? <laughs> oh, this is Plymouth. They're in Plymouth shirt. I don't know where we are. Never seen that ground before. Look at that. He saved a couple for Plymouth. Oh, that was a terrible penalty. That power is at West Brom. That penalty is what uh, people would say is an easy height. Every one of his penalty saves is brilliant. Yeah, well, we, what does this mean? Well, what it means is because he's guessed right, like because he's following the ball, he's always at full stretch. Do you know what I mean? It's never one of those penalty saves where the goalie kind of gets there early and saves it. So it always looks spectacular. What does this mean? We might have to revise our opinion. Do you want an email that says, in defence of Peter Shilton? Wayne Lloyd Smith. Dear Quickly Kevin, as a long-time listener and XJ8 member, after recent claims that Peter Shilton was never any good for England, I wanted to offer something of a reprieve for him from a footballing perspective. At the climax of the 1990 World Cup qualifiers in autumn 1989, England needed at least a draw away in Poland to qualify for the World Cup. Otherwise, they would have left themselves open to dropping out of the qualifying spots based on one second-place team not qualifying, which turned out to be Denmark. In the game, Shilton turned out a man-of-the-match performance with several good saves that ensured England gained the draw they needed to qualify for the 1990 World Cup. Without that man-of-the-match performance, England would not have qualified for the World Cup in 1990. English football would probably not have had the revival it experienced in the early 90s, leading to the creation of the Premier League, the amazing time we all know and love today. Without that, would the Quickly Kevin podcast even exist? I know. I shudder at the thought. This isn't actually Peter Shilton trying to justify his footballing existence, I promise. All the best, lads. Wayne Lloyd-Smith. Absolutely fascinating. That is wow. that is our equivalent of finding out that Darth Vader is your father in The Empire Strikes Back. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, isn't it? That is amazing. Wow, mind-blowing. Well, we all know that this week also Peter Shorten tweeted out a tweet. <laughs> oh, how come we've got to talk about this. We've got to talk about this. Are you aware of this, Michael? Yeah. Peter Shorten tweeted out... Um, Happy birthday to my husband, Peter Shilton. Is that right? Happy birthday to my wonderful husband, at Peter Shilton, who I absolutely adore. And that's from the account of Peter Shilton. <laughs> <laughs> sensational oh, well, Sensational stuff. We've all done it. Um, I know I've tweeted out a picture of Stan Flashman from my main Instagram account and deleted it very swiftly. <laughs> Oh, I wanted that. Well, I kind of want that to happen. Just the total bewilderment. 
<laughs> the majority well, of your followers. Well, I'm happy to. Why don't I? Why don't I? On Friday, when this is out on the so so it's before the shows come out on the main feed. This is for XJ8 listeners only. I'll tweet out a picture of Stan Flashman. I'll Instagram it out. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the grid? I mean, on the grid is a bit much, isn't it? It's a big move. Yeah, a big on, move the on the grid. Do you know what we should do? On the grid. And what should the caption be? 21 stone Stan Flashman. No, I'm not doing that. I'll get number body shaming. <laughs> just the caption will just be Stan Flashman. <laughs> we should... Um, you remember when they uh, were marketing Fire Festival? Firefest and yeah. they sort of overtook social media with like what was it like an orange square that they got all the influencers to post oh yeah we yeah. should mobilize the quickly given audience and at a set time and date everyone that listens to this show has preloaded the same picture of stan flashman oh yeah. and then we just firebomb instagram with this same picture let's do that a flash mob flashman mob so when will we do our flashman mob uh, I think we need to give have given everyone a chance to have listened to this episode. So it should okay. probably be like three or four days after the general release. So like maybe okay. maybe Thursday. Thursday at midday. Thursday at midday. And it will be the Flashman picture that I put up this Friday. Yeah. With just the caption Stan Flashman. Yeah, so okay. Every Quickly Heaven listener, we, we expect you to do your duty. Could we get it trending? Could we get Stan Flashman trending? Yes, let's do it. Hashtag Stan Flashman. <laughs> So put it on your Twitter as well. Swarm your social media with Stan Flashman. 12pm Thursday. Put it in your diary now. Yeah, I have done. I've written it down with a Sharpie of all things, so it really is staying <laughs> and there. And as, as an extra incentive, I will be searching that hashtag and I will be giving away some uh, Quickly Kevin merch to anyone that does it oh, ra- lovely, randomly, lovely, lovely. so get involved. We'll put the picture up. I'll put it on my Instagram. We'll also put it on our Quickly Kevin Instagram, which is what? what? Instagram.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. There we go, to get the picture. So there we go. Right, now, electronic post bag. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the electronic post bag. You've got mail. We did have an email, and it does come into my head now every time, saying that they love Jim Rosenthal, but it annoys them every time that he calls it the electronic post bag. What should it be called? The electronic post bag. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) That's almost as bad as the grief I get for pronouncing it Ballon d'Or instead of Blondor. Ballon d'Or, do you say? Ballon d'Or. Ballon d'Or. It's got an apostrophe in it. Just because I speak English. What's the singer, Skull, who sang um, Sign Your Name Across My Heart? <laughs> Terence Trent. D'Arby. Do you call him Terence Trent D'Arby? I've always called him Terence Trent D'Arby. <laughs> <laughs> I've been consistent in that. Um, right, so... Uh, Shall we start with a do I remember this right? 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 Right. We don't get them as much as you, you used to, do you? But they're still good when you get them. This is from Thomas Morley. My email is a do I remember this right? Although potentially only one listener will be able to confirm whether this is the case. Whilst at school in the mid-90s, I recall being fascinated by a boy in the year above me who, it was rumoured, played championship manager in real time. Wow. (laughs) I kind of love that. (laughs) I really love this. Uh... I.e. he'd play... (laughs) Oh, God, this is brilliant. I was laughing so much when I read this. The thought of it. So many questions. I have so many questions already. 
Well, i.e. he'd play one day in the game per actual day. It was also said that he managed to align the days to real life. So he'd play out the 15th of December in the game on the 15th of December in real life. I found this concept both inspiring and bizarre and always wondered how many unexplored areas of the game he was able to plumb with such enormous amounts of time on his hands. Match days must have been particularly intense as a painful loss would have been felt not for the five minutes, but the entire week until the next game. Oh, I love it. That's like, you know how people would do the team talks in the mirror and wear a suit? That is yeah. next level. And also, I, would, I, love, I want to believe that he is waiting until the time of day of the kickoff on the game yeah. so he can only play the match at 3 p.m., on a Saturday, seven forty-five yeah. on a Tuesday. Uh, also, the match speed, one hundred percent, is well, he really said, slow. Do you know what? Presumably, he watched the matches at the slowest possible yes. setting to prolong yeah. the experience, and hence would have spent many hours on ten hooks as his striker rounded the keeper, only to shoot inexplicably wide. <laughs> I was never able to confirm these rumours whilst at school, as I didn't know the boy, and his myth had become so legendary to me that I was afraid, if untrue, I'd be crushed by disappointment. Hence. I never dared ask him directly. However, given his clear obsession with 90s football, I strongly suspect he listens to this podcast. His name was Rob Dale, and he went to Bungay High School in Suffolk, B-U-N-G-A-Y, High School in Suffolk. If Rob is a listener, could he please confirm via the show whether the rumours were true? Thanks for your service, Tom in Sheffield. Do I remember this right? Directed a single person. Fantastic. Yeah. He adds, P.S. Did you know there's a town in Suffolk called Colton Colville? Yes. <laughs> you did know that. Of course you did. Of course Skull knew that. Here's how I found out about that. Colton Cole, Cole, Cole told me. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> I said, you're chatting shit. And then he showed me. It's true. Well, there you go. Now, Skull, are we talking about Roberto Baggio this week? Yes. It's time for Roberto Baggio was shit. Roberto Baggio, the saviour of Italy throughout this tournament. He's missed it! And Brazil win the World Cup! Shit! Thank you. I mean, tons of backup here, including this one email from Simeon Cunningham. Uh, he, He said this... Another thought occurred to him this morning. He says, and it may spark Chris's belief that Baggio was overrated... Just have a look at the difference between Costa Curta's trophy hall compared to Baggio's. It is insane. Okay, are you ready? Yep. Okay, we'll go uh, to that Charlotte and Baggio first. Club honours. Two Serie A trophies, one Coppa Italia, UEFA Cup. Fin- uh, that's finished. Ballon d'Or. Costa Curta. <laughs> seven Serie A. Seven Serie A, one Coppa Italia, five Super Coppa Italianas. Five Champions League slash European Cups. That's amazing, isn't it? Four UEFA Super Cups, two Intercontinental Cups, and UEFA Golden Jubilee Pole number 50. Don't know what that means. But he also finished runner-up in the World Cup in 1994. And he would have won it. He would have won it, of course, if Baggio was any good. So should I Should I be his defence barrister each time for these things. Come on then. Well, I mean, is it, how can you defend the indefensible? <laughs> well, firstly, Costa Curta was a mainstay in the defence of the most successful Italian team of the 90s like the, and 80s. The AC Milan team were unplayable for years and years and years, whereas Baggio was a nomadic player. But also, Phil Neville's trophy hall compared to Gazza's is ridiculous. Like That isn't an, a fair comparison on whether the individual player was great or oh, not. For God's sake. 
Oh, for God's sake. It's always an excuse, isn't it, with Baggio? That really just sums up his whole career, isn't it? There's always, <laughs> oh, no, but what about this? No, but he was a, he's rubbish. <laughs> right. <laughs> Steve Booth writes, hi, all, XJ8 member here. Go to patreon.com forward slash quickly, Kevin, if you'd like to join for much, much more content. It was very, very, very difficult to score goals in Syria in the early 90s. Yes, very good point. That's why when goals were, were scored, they were often spectacular and often scored by exceptional players like Brolin, who we discussed last week, and Baggio. This will blow your mind. Milan won their third successive Scudetto in 1994 with 36 goals. Jesus. How many did they concede? I don't know. It doesn't go into that. That is mad, isn't it? They scored 36 goals all season and won the league. What season was that? 1994? Presumably Chris thinks that they're a worse team than Swindon, who scored 47 <laughs> goals in that season's Premier League. So that's probably less than a goal a game. That's so yeah. Played, yeah, they played 34 games. They 34 scored games. 36 wow. and conceded 15. There to be fair go. as well, that is a proper anomaly because if you have a look at Juventus in second, scored 58 and Sampdoria in third, scored 64. Like, yeah. you have to go down to Roma in seventh, who scored 35, to find someone who scored less. So they scored less goals in the top six and won the league on account of that stingy defence. So where does that leave you with Baggio? So where was Baggio then? He's at Juve, is he, in 94? Yeah. That was the year he won the Ballon d'Or, I think. <laughs> Probably scoring 50% as many goals as the entire AC Milan team <laughs> on his own. If you want to get in touch with the show, this is how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin. And sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Before we go on, if you haven't had enough of the 90s, Skull, how can they get a bit more? Well, listen, guess what? It's taken me two years, but I'm happy to reveal I've written a book about 90s football alongside Sid Lambert, who goes by a funny old game on Twitter. It's all about 90s football. There's a chapter in there on managers wearing flat caps. There's a bit about Jack, Jack Charlton looking like the farmer from Babe. There's a bit of some research I did around Jimmy Firebillies eating a mince pie that had been filled with cat shit. Sir, Sir Alex Ferguson getting a speeding ticket, uh, getting off a speeding ticket by claiming he had diarrhoea. All this good stuff is contained oh, now within a book. I can't wait to that's read called, this, Carl. Can We Not Knock It? And guess what? It's available for pre-order from right now if you go to conquereditions.co.uk. And along with the book... If you buy the book right now from conquereditions.co.uk, you're going to get a signed copy. You're going to get a, you're going to get your name in the book, and you're going to get yeah a little poem contained within the book as well. So it's called "Can We Not Knock It." It's got all kinds of stuff in there, including uh, a playthrough of Terry Venables' The Manager Board Game. Head on over to conquereditions.co.uk and get your copy of "Can We Not Knock It" today. Can I have it without the poem? <laughs> 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 if you want 90s books, uh, Watching Neighbours Twice a Day is in your bookshops now. Do buy it. I don't want to say this, you know, willy-nilly, but it is a Sunday Times bestseller, only just after Taskmaster was considered a quiz book, so removed from the top ten. <laughs> now, how excited are you about this guest? Is this our first World Cup winner? I think it is our first World Cup winner, isn't it? Yeah. Mainly because we've only interviewed British players so far. <laughs> And there's not many World Cup winners knocking around them. I think what we should do is we'll say, we'll say this is Andreas Bremer. We'll go into the interview and then we'll start by telling you how this all came about. This is Quickly Kevin meets Andreas Bremer. 
So, this all started a couple of months ago when um, we'd become a bit into Andreas Bremer. He'd become one of our characters that we go to. Now, normally that's because we've decided we have issues with the person, but it's because we kind of decided that he was one of the, the greatest footballers of the 90s. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd seen that he had written an amusing comment on Gary Lineker's uh, Instagram. <laughs> so I clicked on his name, chucked him a follow, and it turned out it was the best thing I ever did. Because it turned out that Andreas Bremer was brilliant on Instagram. So what you can do with uh, Instagram is you can just message people willy-nilly, even if they're not following you, unlike Twitter. You can DM them. So I sent Andy Bremer a message. And... Uh, I asked him, I thought it was a punt, messaged him and asked whether he'd fancy doing an interview on Quitly Kevin. And astonishingly, he replied and said he would be interested uh, and to contact his agent. So he contacted his agent and his agent said he would love to do it, but his English wasn't good enough to do a straight chat with us. Now, other podcasts, I think, would have been scared off by that. <laughs> But I think I think we made the right decision, didn't we? We did discuss Skull. You momentarily uh, suggested the interpreter route. Yes, a classic era of the, the translation game. Very transworld sport. Very transworld <laughs> sport. But we thought it would just be too clunky with a translator. So what we realised we could do is he was willing to answer the questions if he saw them before, if they were sent to him. So we agreed that we would just send Andreas Bremer. 15 to 20 questions that we were interested in, and he'd send us back a recording of his thoughts on them. And these are, should we call them the Andy Bramer tapes? So obviously it would be quite mad to just play these tapes of Andy Bramer uh, saying his answers to his agent being recorded. So we thought to give it a feel of a normal quickly, Kevin, because obviously we weren't in the room, so we, we weren't having a general conversation with him. We're going to play you bits of what Andy Bramer sent us and then we'll discuss it as we go along, creating the classic quickly Kevin vibe. I'm going to say it. I can't believe we've got the scorer of the winning goal in the 1990 World Cup final, Andy Bramer, to do this for us. And what a lovely guy. Lovely guy. Also, my first note, listen how young he sounds. <laughs> he sounds so young. Sound He's young. great. Timeless. Did you come out of this like me in the same way that after interviewing Gary Neville, I was quite pleased that the 1990 Champions League had happened, 1999. After this, I was like, I don't mind Andy Bramer winning the World Cup. I'm quite happy for 1990 to end how it did. No. Too far. <laughs> that, yeah, I, would too actually, far. <laughs> I would actually say I came out of this a bit emotionally hurt. <laughs> Because, Did you? because of the way he just dismisses the rivalry with England, like like every German we've ever spoken to on here has kind of dismissed it. We started by saying, hello, Andy, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. There he is, our big <laughs> man. And then we decided to ask him, the classic opener of Quitly, Kevin, was he the best player when he was at school? Uh, um, I was uh, good 
but there were other kids uh, on my street, of course, who were also um, amazing footballers. However, uh, when I was uh, young, uh, I trained a lot more than everyone else. I started at uh, Barnberg Uhlenhorst when I was uh, six years old. And my uh, father, who was the coach, was really strict with me. Um, of course, to other kids, he was very caring and fair, but uh, I got the full package and uh, he always uh, had an eye on me. And um, that's, uh, that's how he helped me a lot uh, for my career. Do you buy that Andy Bramer wasn't even the best player on his street, but just worked really Absolutely hard? Absolutely not. Like, I find that... Really? I find that baffling. What, what fucking street did he live on if he's not the... Like, this guy scored the winning goal at the World Cup final, played for, like, one of the best Italian teams in the history of football. Did he live on the same street as Pelé? Like, I, I found that absolutely <laughs> insane. The fact that he's like, yeah, but, but I just trained a bit harder. Because that sort of makes a mockery of the fact that, oh, well, I probably could have made it then if I just trained a bit harder. It's like, come on, Andy. <laughs> well, I subscribe to that. That's actually, I thought, because remember when Harry Redknapp talks about Frank Lampard, he's like, he was just famously just trained and trained and trained and made himself great. And I think there is something to that. I'm not disputing the training thing, the application. You know, Gary Neville is a prime example of that, David Beckham. But the idea that there's a sort of, I'm picturing like a terraced street somewhere in Germany, <laughs> and there's all these kids just kicking a ball around against a, a brick wall. And, <laughs> and and there's Andreas Bremer, like the sixth or seventh best kid. There is absolutely no way. And the best player that I ever played with on the Isle of Wight growing up was 10 times better than anyone else, like just was unplayable. And he never made it to the Premier League. So the idea that there are better players than Andreas Bremer as a sort of kid or a teenager <laughs> is like, let alone one, but multiples, just, oh, just on his street. Left back of our <laughs> not, yeah, not, even, not even in his town, on his street. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about Andreas having his dad as his coach? And it's, it's a classic story of, the dad is always harsher on their own kid. Yeah. To like not show favoritism, I suppose it is, but also to work them harder. I suppose he was annoyed at Andrews because he wasn't the best player on the street. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> God, I, I wish Klaus over at number four was my son. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's going to drive you on, isn't it? Well, this was the thing about Andy Bramer, is that he did have one innate talent that no other footballer really has, which is that he was completely ambidextrous with his feet, which is what we asked him about next. Yeah, and um, just before we go to that clip, is every other kid on his street ambidextrous as well? <laughs> like, how fucking good are these kids on his street and why are none of them professional footballers? This guy can play equally as well with both feet and he's still not the best footballer on his street. It's, it's madness. It was always, uh, I would say, natural. I can write only with my uh, right hand. Uh, but uh, but uh, with my feet, it was always absolutely the same. Uh, at penalties, it was uh, just as a decision uh, of my instinct uh, and uh, feeling. Maybe one minute before I took the penalty, I would go with my feeling and uh, pick whichever foot uh, to use. I mean, it must be mad. It's weird that it's not more regular, actually, isn't it? What, they're playing with both feet? Yeah. I guess the thing that really marks him out is that there's lots... I mean, to be a professional footballer, you've got to be good with both feet. But to genuinely not have a favourite... Yeah, That's what kind exactly. of blows my mind. Like, how could you never have work to, your weaker foot? To take a penalty and just feel 
which one fancies it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like even Ronnie O'Sullivan, Ronnie O'Sullivan will be your kind of touch point, right, for this. Yeah. yeah. But he plays right-handed and then he goes left-handed if he's in a, a position where it would be easier or if he dislikes his opponent and is showing off to annoy them when he's clearing yeah. up. Basically, that's the situation. Yeah. But I'd, I'd wager that if Ronnie O'Sullivan played an entire tournament with his less preferred hand, you'd notice a drop in quality over the course yeah, of like I think shots. So, yeah, yeah. I don't think he's equally as good. But essentially, no. Anders Bremer is as good. Like you, you just you wouldn't notice the difference. Yeah. Does it happen in other sports? Is Andres Bremer one of the only people in any sport? It'd be amazing in tennis, wouldn't it? If there was one player that only only ever had to play forehands, because whatever side it was, <laughs> they just pass the racket from right to left hand to just keep it on the forehand. I was just trying to think like other sports where it might be advantageous to have both hands. I was thinking like darts. There's no advantage. There's no darts. advantage in darts. That's <laughs> stupid. The strange thing about it is the weird thing people pick out is that you take a penalty with either foot, and that's one of the few things where it's absolutely no advantage. Yeah. Unless you're running up and they don't know which foot you're hitting with. Even then, corners is more of an advantage because you can always hit in-swingers, I suppose. Yeah, and free kicks as well, I guess, depending on the position. You're essentially the first choice for every single free kick. But I I, I can understand that because that's almost like a kind of special place thing. I think you could train yourself to take free kicks well with your other foot. But in the flow of a game, on the pitch, in the moment, they're not being a preference either way. Or, you know, he could pick either way and there'd be no difference in the quality of his first touch or his pass or any of that. It's just mind-blowing. It's really amazing. And it's kind of... We've had emails in about other players that maybe take a corner with either foot or stuff. But these aren't players who are playing at literally the highest level with both feet. And Franz Beckenbauer is saying they don't know which foot is their better to play with. To give you an idea of the other people we've had in... uh, the two suggested by James Guyon uh, for players that took penalties with both feet. The two players in the Premier League history to score penalties with both feet. Anyone? Oberfemi Martins and Bobby Zamora. Wow. There yeah. you go. You must have met Bobby Zamora. I met, met him recently, yeah. Next time you meet him, ask him about his two-foot thing, yeah? <laughs> what's Bobby, what's this two-foot thing I hear about? <laughs> his both-footed thing. <laughs> I think it is the kind of thing that marks Andreas Bremer out as one of the great footballers of our lifetime. That, that he's He's got like a special thing that no one else has got. Yeah. So then we come on to ask him about uh, the best moment of his career, really, domestically. And that is his time at Inter Milan under the manager Giovanni Trapattoni. Giovanni Trapattoni was a very special chapter. Uh, He was incredible uh, and one of the best coaches I've ever worked with. He created um, the perfect team uh, and spirit and obviously we were very successful. He spoke to us one-on-one a lot and after training uh, we always spent extra time practicing. I played um, in Bayern, for example, a lot uh, in midfield as well and uh, it was uh, Trapattoni and uh, Beckenbauer who um, then moved me to a, a full-time left-back. Trapattoni. Fascinating that he liked him, because I've always thought Trapattoni was a bit unlikable and that the Baggio film on Netflix cemented that in my mind. But he seemed to love him. It is interesting, isn't it? Because we remember Trapattoni in the UK and Ireland as the guy who came to 
managed the Irish team and made them quite shit. <laughs> like he was, he was, I suppose in the same way, Capello, his reputation over here probably isn't what it deserves to be. Yeah. I kind of regret that I'm slightly, if someone said like, what like bit of the 80s football would you have liked to have witnessed and been a part of? I, I wish I'd known more about that kind of period of Milan and Inter Milan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Inter Milan with Jurgen Klinsmann, Lothar Matthias, and Andy Bremer. And you're only allowed three foreigners. Yeah. And they've signed those three. That's so exciting, isn't it's it? It's fascinating. And it I think is. growing up, it was the Dutch contingent at AC Milan that were the sort of glamour names. You know, everyone had heard of Hullet, Van Basten, Rijkaard. You know, I've still got the little figures, the pro star figures from those guys. But sort of looking into this and around it, you don't, you at least didn't realise the kind of scale of what was going on there. These were two of well, the two arguably biggest or two of the biggest teams in Italy at the time, which was the most successful and the best league in the world. And they've signed three players from rival countries for their own yeah. teams, creating this sort of like weird ecosystem. It's like Germany versus Holland. It's Milan versus Inter. In the same in stadium. In the same stadium. Like, I think that's unprecedented. There, there isn't, you know, the only, the closest you'd get to that is if sort of City and United both signed Messi, Aguero and Di Maria. And then United signed, you know, Neymar, Gabriel Jesus, someone else. And then they decided to share a stadium. And also, on top of that, that's not in addition to your other foreign players. You're only allowed three. Yeah. You've chosen them all from the same pool. Do you know what I mean? You've gone, we've got the three best Germans. You've got the three best Dutchmen. Let's see how this goes. Yeah, it's like a sort of playground game when you're picking your mates off the wall. I've just got a memory, right, which I I should Google. I'm sure this is true. I remember, so Aston Villa, I think it must have been the year after. Yeah, so the year after the World Cup, when I just first got into sport, into football from the Italian 90 World Cup, thanks to Peter Shilton getting England there, and I wouldn't have been into football otherwise. (laughs) I remember... Aston Villa were in the UEFA Cup or something, because Graham Taylor would have just got them second, right? And they played into Milan. And I remember seeing the name... I, me- I vividly remember that Inter Milan team having those three German players and me being absolutely blown away that this existed. Yeah. And then when you actually... I've just Googled that team. There's so many good players in it. Because you've got Walter Zenger in goal... Bergami is in defence with Bremer and Ferry, who I don't know. And then Matthias has got Nicola Berti and Serena up front, who was the striker who played for Italy. It's like so exciting that that team existed. Yeah, back back when those sort of the best players domestically very rarely left their home country. Yeah, the Aston Villa beat them 2-0 and the Aston Villa team contains a forward line of Tony Daly and Tony Cascarino. <laughs> <laughs> and a defence of Andy Common, who ended up at Plymouth, Derek Mountfield, Kent Nielsen, and Chris Price, who I've never heard of. Midfield of Gordon <laughs> Cowans, Stuart Gray, never heard of him, Paul Birch, who ended up at Exeter City, and David Platt. And they beat that Inter team. Now, we can talk about, like, Serie A at that point and AC Milan versus Inter, but obviously uh, better that Andy Bramer talks about it. Uh, Serie A at that time was like, uh, I would say, Premier League uh, today. Everybody wanted to play there and the teams uh, and all matches were on the highest level. Um, Of course, uh, I played several times against Diego uh, in the league, but the toughest striker to play against uh, in my entire career was uh, Ruth Ruth, uh, Gullit, 
he was uh, very fast, clever, and nearly unstoppable. He was uh, really like an amazing player. Um, Jürgen only came a year later, but Lothar and I lived even in the same village uh, near Milan. Um, and due to the great team spirit at Inter, I was um, also hanging around with all my Italian uh, teammates. The Italians helped us a lot and there was everywhere a warm welcome. Italian football fans have a lot of passion and support you to the end. We all became more or less Italians and uh, today I feel at least uh, 50% uh, I'm an Italian. At that time, the River Vri um, AC Milan against Inter was uh, even increased uh, by um, the German-Dutch element. Uh, the derby um, della Madonnina was like a little uh, Germany versus uh, Holland uh, match. Off pitch, uh, they were uh, great sportsmen and uh, we had a lot of respect uh, for each other. Uh, I still have uh, contact with all three players and then we meet every time and then we have uh, always uh, great fun. It is always like coming home when I'm at uh, San Siro. If ever there's proof that 90s football is an infinite well that we are <laughs> never going to stop going to, it is that we've never talked about the AC and Inter Milan rivalry. Now, I didn't know this next thing. I don't know who put this question in. Who put this in? But he then almost moved to Barcelona. Yes, that would have been me. Yeah. So this is uh, Andy's take on it. During that time, uh, Barca could only uh, have three foreign players. Uh, and in the end, they could not uh, sell one of them. So the deal did not happen. Uh, but uh, I ended up at Zaragoza, which uh, was also a fantastic club and time. So he failed to go to Barcelona because they had three foreigners already. Yeah, and r real echoes of what's happening at Barcelona now, isn't it? Where they've just yeah. signed players and it's like, oh, wait. We can't play them all. Yeah, yeah. Like, what do we do? It's been going on a long time. Bremer blazed that trail. Exactly. I don't know. This is my observation of Spanish football from afar. But it just feels like a massive kind of car crash. Do you know what I mean? Like, no one really... It's just bumbling along. Like, people, like this is like a multi-generational thing there. The, the Bremer yeah. experience, and it still goes on today, where you're just like, God, is who's it, who knows what they're doing here? Well, it feels like those two big clubs are so big and so untouchable that at points they just do what they just, want. They just do what they want and get away with it enough that they can just be badly managed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think yeah. there's definitely a whiff of the sort of too big to fail about them. But that's three player rule. Like, it is fascinating. It's mad that it happened. Isn't I mean, it? I sort of a question, a hypothetical is like, were it to come back or were it to be proposed, be would A, you want it and B, what kind of impact do you think it would have on like the English national side as a result of all of those players being given chances that they probably wouldn't have been at the top level? Well, if you told me that a while ago, I'd have gone, yeah. But now it does feel like so many good English players are coming through that it's not as hindering as it felt three or four years ago. However, it would be hugely thrilling if they announced it and teams had one summer to adapt. <laughs> 
Can you imagine the price of English players suddenly go? The premium yeah. on having quite a good English player would go through the um, absolute roof. Well, it's already quite bad now. Like, imagine how much worse it would get. Yeah. And also, if they brought in an Inter and AC Milan rule, that you had to have three players from the same country. <laughs> so, you could, <laughs> so you could only pick from one country. So if you wanted in the 90s George Weah, you had to take two other Liberians. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and Ali Dyer counts. <laughs> Ali Dyer does count, of course. We then obviously moved on to uh, Bremer's international career. We first asked him um, about a man we found quite scary, in theory, but he was a big fan of, Franz Beckenbauer. Franz was not only a player uh, as a as a player, a genius, but uh, also a fantastic coach. We all had incredible uh, respect to him because he was an uh, idol for us. He treated us always fair and very professional. And for most of us, he was uh, like a real father and um, he was always uh, there for us. Um, We were only allowed to call him Franz after uh, we won the World Cup uh, in 1990. The big thing to come out of that for me, the discussion of Franz Beckenbauer, is that he only allowed them to call him Franz after they'd won the World Cup. I love that. What a detail that is. I really love that. Can you imagine going back into the dressing room if you won the World Cup and you say, cheers, boss, and he goes, call me Franz. (laughs) (laughs) You've earned it. I wonder also if he... Was was that a thing that he just sprung on them after the World Cup win? Or was that a carrot he dangled? Yeah, because they almost <laughs> forgot about the trophy. They were too busy calling Beckenbauer France. <laughs> <laughs> Making use of their, their new prize. So the thing that that sort of made me think as well is that, and it doesn't really happen, I, was, I mean, I might be wrong, but in Europe and in sort of uh, other foreign countries, you, there's a lot of success stories of genuine playing legends and icons taking over yes. the national team and then doing incredibly yeah. well whereas in the uk that just like it doesn't happen i know obviously southgate is in charge now and it's doing you know a great job he's the second most successful england manager of all time arguably the most because he's done it over two tournaments. yeah his record is fantastic but he wasn't at the level of say your beckenbauers of your Mateus, of even yeah. say your Klinsmans. so i was just sort of interested in like why there isn't that infrastructure. Bobby Moore becoming the England manager. Yes, or... yeah, someone like that. Or even, like you know, say a Gary Lineker. And I know sort of certain players just aren't interested in management, but it definitely feels like there is more of a sort of system and a process that bloods and, and makes. It's like, oh, our best players will become our national team managers at, at some point. I, I totally agree. I think this is the right way. Well, I don't I think we've discussed this before on the podcast. But we've got to bear in mind that for the first part of last season and the season before, Chris Skull wanted Chelsea to be a success so that Frank Lampard could be a good England manager. (laughs) (laughs) A baffling decision for a West Ham fan. Well, you're just looking at succession, aren't you? Like, I, I would actually... I think I may have even said this on here, but give it to Steven Gerrard. Give it to someone at the very top. Do you know what I mean? Like, who, who understands what it means to play those games? I just don't feel like the problem is that the players don't understand what it means to play those games. <laughs> and you've got to remember that Stephen Gerrard Have I got too failed. much of a 90s mentality about this? <laughs> Stephen Gerrard has failed repeatedly in those games. Do you know what? 
Steven Gerrard achieved a lot in his career. The one thing he was didn't achieve was excellent performances at international tournaments. <laughs> but I know, I totally agree. But how comfortable would you be if Gareth Southgate leaves and they announce that the next England manager is going to be Terry Butcher? <laughs> yeah, not not a great choice, Terry Butcher, admittedly. All right, all right. but uh, uh, David Beckham, how comfortable are you if they announce the next England manager is David Beckham? Or are you instantly going, well, he's going to be outfoxed by uh, Roberto Mancini? Do you know what I mean? Who's another good example? Well, that's that's exactly it. Although it wasn't, it wasn't a big international player. To be fair to him, no, but he was he was a world class player at, at, at the time, Ooh. fantastic player. Um, but it's it's interesting that there just isn't, and obviously it does happen, but there isn't that same. And I don't know whether that's a damning indictment of sort of the English game at a kind of board level, like the international team and their approach, and especially that old kind of you know the reason why Clough didn't get the England job, for example is a reason yeah. why perhaps great players who would make great managers aren't given the opportunity as well. But then they did they did appoint a dangerous choice and he lasted one game. So, you know, <laughs> were they wrong? 100% record. 100% record. Bring him back. Bring him back. Let's have him possible. finish what he started. <laughs> the pint of wine. <laughs> now, could we have some... Um, can we have some mariachi music as we travel back to Mexico, 1986? Well, I mean, we all knew that Diego um, was uh, at the peak of his career and had uh, a massive uh, respect but we were uh, not scared uh, and played a great final. Uh, but to be honest, uh, Diego was uh, 1986 uh, unstoppable and uh, Argentina deserved to win. Bola trying to take up a near post position here. Bremer curls it awkward. Oh, it's there! Don't forget, uh, uh, Germany also lost the final 1982 against Italy. So uh, 1986 uh, was a tough lesson, especially um, after we had equalized the uh, uh, 2-0 lead um, of the Argentinians. But this defeat uh, was the foundation of our win four years later. So uh, I would say we came uh, back even stronger with the right mentality. Germany got to the final of Mexico 1986. What I hadn't thought about, in my head, German football is this kind of steamroller of success. But when Germany got to the final of World Cup 90, they were off the back of losing 82 and 86 in the final, which I'd never clocked before. You never think, yeah, didn't think about that. If they'd lost 1990, that 
they're suddenly like the Jimmy White of World Cups. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really good point. It's funny how history is so quickly rewritten. And I sort of thought that as well about uh, Italian 90, which he sort of comes to. Because we only know the English prism of those events, you only sort of see like the headlines of the other nations. And I'd love to do a deep dive into um, Mexico 86 and Euro 88 as well one day on this pod. Because my knowledge starts and ends with Maradona and the hand of God. Like yeah. it doesn't extend. Which is awful for Euro 88 because he wasn't even there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. I'd love to know more about those tournaments. Because for me, 1982 is Paolo Rossi, Brazil being really good but not winning it, and then the German keeper knocking the teeth out of a French forward with his arse. <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's 1982 for me in a nutshell, really. But you forget that Germany, if you actually think about it, we th- we think about all their victories, but they've had lots of frail periods in our even in our lifetime. Yeah, well, interesting. You know, they won Italia ninety, and then in, when it comes to World Cups, didn't win another one until twenty fourteen. That's mad, really, isn't it? And they were bad in USA ninety four, and they were bad in France ninety eight. Yeah, they did get to the final in two thousand two, and in eighty two, and in eighty six. So you know, and in ninety two, and in ninety two. Yeah, and they won Euro 96. So actually, it's been pretty <laughs> impressive. Now, a bit of Ness and Dormer, I suppose, because we come to the real meat of what we wanted to talk to Andy Bramer about, which was Italia 90. But the thing was, when we think about Italia 90, we think about England versus West Germany. But really, before the final, that wasn't Germany's biggest game. Germany's biggest game was their second round game, when, astonishingly, the World Cup favourites and the team that had been to the final in 82 and 86 came up against the Euro 88 champions, Holland, at, of all places, the San Siro. This is Andy's take on that. Uh, this famous round um, of 16 in San Siro was an amazing match. Um, a packed uh, San Siro where no one was neutral. Uh, there were the Germans uh, and the Dutch fans and uh, there were the Italians, either Inter or AC Milan supporters. Uh, so an incredible atmosphere. Uh, Frank and Rudy uh, shook hands uh, immediately after the game um, and uh, they even uh, made a commercial together after the World Cup. Uh, yeah, so Rudy is still one of my best friends and uh, for me he has one of the best, uh, he is one of the best players um, on the planet. Uh, and uh, due to his hair, he had um, the nickname uh, in German Tante Kete, which is in English uh, Auntie Kate. <laughs> Arguably the biggest game that we haven't given enough credit to in the 90s up until this point. I thought about that. If you scripted that, it would be unbelievable. You're playing in your home stadium, those six players against each other for your national teams that is arguably for both countries. Well, not arguably, inarguably, the biggest rivalry for both of them. Yeah, they hate each other, those two teams, don't they? That's two on the nose. If that wasn't real life, you'd go, oh, come on, this isn't. This isn't real. And then for that game to be as kind of explosive and incident filled is just amazing. It's astonishing. Shall we focus on the fact that 
Rudy Voller's nickname was Auntie Kate. (laughs) (laughs) Auntie Kate. Lovely. That I love it. People say Germans don't have a sense of humour. What a great nickname. But I didn't know Rudy Voller. Because he's got the hair of an auntie. (laughs) Right? That's what it is, isn't it? I mean it's that's route one. I was like, surely. I don't think it is route one because it's a great observation. (laughs) It's not like you've got the hair of this person. It's you've got the hair. I mean, I might be wrong. Auntie Kate might be a German reference, but to me, it's you've got the hair of a generic auntie with the name Kate. It could be Auntie Sharon. (laughs) It's a great nickname. It's superb. And it makes me love that German team even more. I also thought it was interesting that we imagine that to be such a high octane incident, but he points out that. Rijkaard and Voller like shook hands after the game. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I knew that they had sort of made peace years later because they did do that advert that he mentions. But if someone spat at me in any context, let alone (laughs) during a football match watched by the most people on the planet at that moment in time, I'm not shaking their hand after the game. (laughs) No, absolutely not. As well, Andy kind of, does he imply there that they they get on? They they were quite pally after? Like, yeah. He implies in the interview also that he gets on really well with these Dutch players. Yeah. Which is not what you want, is it? No. <laughs> you want him to go, gutting, I despised Rude Hullet. I despised Marco Van Basten. I despised Frank Rijkaard. Not, I see them regularly in Lake Garga. Yeah. Garda. <laughs> Lady Garga. With Lady Garga. It's a huge fan of 90s film. You, what you really want is that they all live on the same sort of street or same gated community. And well, they did, where Andy Gay-Bramer grew up. That was the problem. <laughs> it wasn't even the best one. And they're sort of having petty arguments over, like, wheelie bins and all of that stuff outside of the football. Yeah. There's three orange houses on one side of the street and three white and black houses on the other side of the street. And the white and black have got that, that stripe through it, like the yeah. German shirt from 1990. Which brings us to, well, probably the most heartbreaking night of the early 90s. England versus West Germany. In Turin. This was Andy's feelings on it. In the World Cup knockout phase, uh, you take all opponents very serious. We had uh, uh, massive problems in the quarterfinals in the last uh, minutes against the uh, Czech Republic. And um, after the game, uh, Franz shouted at us in the dressing room very loud. And uh, I still get cold sweats uh, thinking about uh, that team talk uh, today. Um, England England games are for German uh, teams always uh, great matches. Simply, it's a match of two great uh, football nations. Yeah, I I hardly can't uh, remember, but I guess it was uh, my free uh, free kick, uh, which was deflected in a very unlucky way. But I guess uh, I will claim it. Chris, you feel quite strongly about this, don't you? It's just crushing. I didn't realise it was a one-sided rivalry. It's just disappointing. That this, specifically the Paul Parker thing. He, he kind of goes, oh, do you remember, you know, was it your goal? Was it a Paul Parker <laughs> goal? He's like, what? Oh, uh, <laughs> oh, the, oh yeah, do you mean the, yes, the goal from the free kick in the World Cup semi-final, Andy? <laughs> Is it because you've done? Because the thing is, he's done so much in his career that this moment that means so much to us means yeah. nothing to the guy who was there. It's like in thirty years, you interview Raheem Sterling for your Danish football podcast, <laughs> and they go, "Well, obviously, we're going to ask you 
was it a penalty in Euro 2020? He's like, what? You're like, was it? Uh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Can we watch it on YouTube? I don't really remember it. <laughs> Who were we playing again? Oh, Denmark. Yeah, yeah. Uh... <laughs> oh, oh, God. Dear. You really do think, I guess as an England football fan, you think the world revolves around you and it really doesn't, does it? No, it really doesn't. Um, but there we go. It went down to a shootout. And once again, we are, we asked the obvious question, uh, which was, um, did Peter Shilton give you confidence? And this was Andy's take on um, the England versus West Germany penalty shootout. For West Germany, it's going to be Bremer. And I take you back to Mexico City and 1985. Shilton was the goalkeeper. It was England against West Germany. Bremer was the penalty taker and Shilton saved it. Can he repeat the feat here? He can't. So 1-1. We were only focusing on us and ourselves. Uh, A penalty shootout is always a very tricky thing. You can't simulate this training since nobody can train the mental pressure and stress after running 120 minutes in a World Cup semi-final. And um, especially uh, you can't uh, reflect um, the pressure and uh, all the noise in the stadium. But we had uh, some great penalty shooters in the team and um, we all felt uh, very confident. Obviously, England lost that on a shootout. But the penalty we were more interested in was in 1985. Because as you know, over the last few weeks, we've been really obsessing over Peter Shilton and a particular penalty in his career which changed his penalty saving technique which was when he saved a penalty from Andreas Bremer in 1985 friendly in Mexico when England beat West Germany 3-0. We asked Andy whether this was the most humiliating moment of his career. So um, this was a pre-World Cup tournament with Mexico, England and Germany in 1985 I only remember that our entire team got uh, Munzuma's uh, revenge. So it was uh, very difficult to get 11 fit players on the pitch. Uh, and in the end, uh, we lost 3-0 three, uh, three to, uh, to England. But the only problems apart from that that the Germans have caused has been from long-range shots. Well, it's a full-back Bremer who's going to take it. Can Shilton hold out? Can England keep their lead? Will it be 1-1? Right on half-time. Bremer with the penalty. And Shilton received it! Magnificent by Peter Shilton! And England stay 1-0 in the lead. Well, what I found interesting about this is, and I don't know whether it's the mentality of sort of winners or players or nations that have won tournaments and competitions and matches where there's no lingering on defeat. Like, it doesn't matter. No. There's no kind of lament. There's no, like, it hasn't affected him in any way. And he's so sort of matter of fact and clinical about everything. And perhaps that's also the German mentality. But it it really sort of belittles the status you've given so many of these events. Well, I tell you what belittles it is that they had the shits. They had Montezuma's revenge, which is the shits. They struggled to get a team together because they all had stomach problems. And that yet yeah, that is the moment 
that Peter Shilton has used to define his penalty saving. <laughs> this key moment in Peter Shilton's life came about because Andreas Bremer had been shitting through the eye of a needle. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's... And yet Peter Shilton's going around going, I think I've mastered penalties now. I've just saved one from Andy Bremer. I'm going to change everything. And it's going to impact on the Italian 90 World Cup and penalties for the next five years. And it turns out Germany had turned up to this friendly basically ill. And that was why they lost. So again, you can tra- trace it back one step. It's a guy who hasn't thoroughly cooked a chicken in Mexico. <laughs> That's why we didn't win the World Cup in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been a roller coaster for Peter Shilton this episode. But I'd say. I'm back to hate him. Again. Yeah, I'm back to hate him again. <laughs> But that obviously isn't the penalty that Andy Bremer is most famous for in his career. That came in the final. So after 85 minutes, Argentina have basically been violent bullies and defensive for the whole match. West Germany finally get a penalty. And this is what it is like to take a penalty in the World Cup final. Lothar did not feel uh, secure. Uh, also, he um, was supposed to be uh, the shooter. Uh, he had the chance, uh, he had to uh, change uh, his shoes at halftime because the sole was broken. And uh, back uh, then, we didn't have four different uh, boots uh, like today. So Lothar had to use uh, an old pair of shoes. Um, that he lent uh, to Maradona for a friendly game uh, and the South American lace uh, their boots in a different way. So he was not uh, comfortable. Um, he, we just looked uh, at each other and it was uh, clear for me to take over. It is quite a funny story that Lothar played against uh, Argentina in uh, a World Cup final with a pair of uh, Maradona boots. <laughs> But uh, the problem was that uh, the Argentina players uh, were delaying the actual penalty by uh, seven, uh, yeah, almost seven minutes uh, by discussing with the referee. And then um, Rudi Völler uh, came to me and whispered uh, into my ear, um, listen, if you score, we are world champions. Uh, and I said, um, just uh, thank you very much, Rudi. Uh, that, uh, that is the kind uh, of pressure uh, you need. Yeah? But I was not uh, scared. I, I focused uh, on on doing my job and uh, to score the penalty. There's so much here that I love. Just say, yeah, you got to start with Rudy going, score this and we're world champions. Yeah, come on, Rudy. Rudy. You fucking don't need that. Come on, auntie. Come on, auntie Kate. <laughs> Leave yeah. off. Frank. Read the fucking room. I know where I am. <laughs> The Rudy Voller score this and we're world champions isn't astonishing. You're a striker, mate. You should be stepping up to take <laughs> this yourself. Also, the seven-minute delay. Yeah. That is intense, isn't it? A seven-minute wait to take a penalty to win the World Cup. But it's always been interesting why Bremer took it rather than Lothar Mateus, who was the penalty taker. I didn't realise it's because Lothar Mateus was wearing borrowed boots. In the World Cup final. Not just borrowed. Borrowed from Maradona. I'd have thought Lothar Mateus had bigger feet than Maradona. I was going to say that, yeah. But I couldn't tell whether he... uh, This might not be right, but I think that maybe Mateus had lent Maradona some boots previously and Maradona was loaning or giving him back the boots that he'd loaned him. Why has Maradona still got them with him? How often do they see Is it because he's gone... 
He's gone to the World Cup and he's gone, oh, I'm actually going to see Lothar Mateus tonight. I should take those boots that I've got. (laughs) (laughs) When you've got someone's jacket and you're going, should I take it? Because he's only going to get lumbered with them then after the game. I don't know whether he'll want them back on tonight. so, So I think they were originally Lothar Mateus's boots because he talks about a detail which I was really interested in which is he says South Americans lace their boots in a different yeah. way now like yeah, what what's that? I mean after you know I've seen people like wear their converse differently but how different yeah. can the lacing of a pair of boots be and how much is it going to impact your ability to strike a ball or, or take a penalty like what what do you think they're doing differently it's on the streets really of South America one, that, yeah it? I'd love it if anyone could so let's get some stilled footage of Maradona, or just some photos of Maradona in the late 80s and Lothar Mateus. Zoom in on the shoes, do send them in, and we'll see what the difference in lacing approach was of Lothar Mateus and Diego Maradona. Do you remember that craze in the 90s where people would put like a widget on their trainer? Maybe Maradona had like uh, oh, yeah. the top of a beer bottle that he'd sort of lace through, and that's why he had such good <laughs> ball control. That was, that was the secret all along. Obviously, then, after Italia 90, it comes to Euro 92 and USA 94, two tournaments that Germany didn't do particularly well in. This is Andy's take on them. And uh, Kola was a bit overconfident. Yes! Jensen! Sean Jensen has finally got one right! And Denmark have struck first in the 19th minute. Oh, and uh, Christensen kicked out then. This is Phil Fort. Oh, it's in! It is in! And it's Kim Billfort! Going to have to endure another free kick. No, it is over! Denmark's dream has become reality. A quite astonishing achievement. The rank outsiders who didn't even qualify have become the champions of Europe. Undisputed. Denmark have done it. They are the 1992 European champions. It is simply a footballing fairy tale. Um, I was uh, I was even uh, uh, captaining our team since uh, Lothar was not taking part to a ligament injury. Um, when uh, we then. Uh, also lost Rudy to an injury. We really uh, suffered from the loss of these two players. Um, the team and also myself, I did not have the best day in the final. And um, the, the Danish uh, were just in incredible uh, condition. So they really deserved uh, the title. Kiriakov to Yakov. Nick turned by him. And Letskov going in and it's another one! Bulgaria are in front, Letskov from villain to hero, the man who gave away the penalty has now struck so decisively at the other end. It was a brilliant header then, Yakov with the cross and look how Letskov has sneaked in in front of Hessler. A marvellous header and suddenly the game has turned around. I mean, I was already playing during the Olympic tournament uh, in uh, LA in 1984. Uh, the stadiums uh, were huge, but the atmosphere was was strange. Um, I still remember the incredible heat uh, since we had um, to play at noon. 
uh, the team was uh, on paper very strong, but we were not one unit, um, uh, which you could uh, see at the end uh, on the pitch. I mean, Euro 92, obviously the forgotten tournament for England, quite a strange tournament for Germany. Do you remember like watching that final? No, I remember not watching it. I remember Schmeichel being amazing in it. And I, I'm willing to say that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I remember being outside playing football whilst it was on and then coming in to find out the result. But I recently was watching clips and highlights of that final and the shit housing from the Danes, the back pass, really? the back oh, pass. Really? The, the oh yeah, Danes, no, I've seen a supercut of that. It, it's crazy. They, I would say so what happens? They, they, the ball will go to Schmeichel and obviously he will just keep it at his feet, crouched over, ready to pick it up and we'll just wait. So is this pre-back this is pre-back pass, pass? And I think this game was arguably the biggest reason why it was implemented because they basically... I thought it came in earlier. No, they, they, it, it was possibly being discussed, but I think this definitely was the tipping point because... They pass it back to Schmeichel and he doesn't, he just keeps it at his feet and just waits for the German player to come onto them. He picks it up. He will then roll it out to another defender to the side of the box who will then, rather than play an attacking ball forward, will play it back to Schmeichel and he'll pick it up again. And there are passages of play where he does that like several times in a row before booting it up the field. It's one of the worst games of football I've ever seen. Wow, (laughs) because in your mind, the Danes are like this amazing, happy, plucky team that have been added to the tournament late. But it turns out they're actually, you know, I mean, I suppose it's a bit like when Greece won Euro 2004 and it's like, yeah, but they didn't do it in this glorious way. The underdog doesn't necessarily like win it in a in a Hollywood. Murder. I think you'd be hard pressed if you watched the whole game to come out of it going, "Oh yeah, I'm glad the Danes won." If anything, you're rooting for the Germans by the end <laughs> yeah. of it. Do you remember Germany going out of USA '94? Yeah, that felt like a massive deal at the time. It did feel like a huge deal, didn't yeah. it? Because they went out in the quarters to Bulgaria, of and it course. felt yes. I Lechkov. didn't watch it, but I remember finding out the news. I was I was on the ferry, the Tamar ferry between. Uh, Cornwall and Devon coming back from seeing my half siblings and I remember it being on the radio and it it like blew my mind yeah because that just didn't happen Germany losing to someone who they weren't meant to lose in the quarterfinals I also think at that point in my life I just was so unaware of Bulgaria as a country or a place this was probably the first time I'd ever heard of them so it was like what they've lost to like that might as well be Qatar they've lost us like a regional team as far as I was concerned yeah do you, do you know what as well that game I don't know if you remember watching it I didn't Bulgaria scored two goals in really quick succession I think they were one nil down and Bulgaria come come back so it was real drama but the other thing that happened on that day is that even to this day in the back of my mind I will think Bulgaria are a world-class team because of yes. that win like for, yeah. forever I think Bulgaria are a team to fear yeah, they're dangerous. They're dangerous. Like they're that, always, that because yeah. of that that one day. I'm surprised you haven't written off Haristo Stoichkov because he won the Ballon d'Or. <laughs> we always end with well, Chris, you always ask the same question at the end. Would you like to ask it of Andy Bramer? If you had the opportunity to go back in time to the first of January, 1990, and do it all again, would you, Andy? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, I do not regret anything. Um, and would do everything the same way. And um, I'm very grateful what football has given me uh, and the people that um, I work with and uh, what I could have learned uh, in my career. And no is the answer there. No. He seems like a very content man. 
Like yeah. he's yeah. someone nice that has guy. no regrets, that sort of is yeah. very, very happy with what he's done. And I, I, I really admire that. Yeah, I think there's something great about, I mean, obviously it's easy to have no regrets when you've had his career. But I think I love that when you meet a footballer who just goes, kind of what an amazing thing to have happened to me almost. And they're just really happy with how their career went. Yeah. yeah. I really feel that often when we interview these players, they've got a, a sense of perspective on it because there's a distance now to their careers. Yeah. Where it's like, just an amazing adventure that you don't realise you're on probably at the time. And also what I find is that the guys like Andy and Gary Neville said this as well, the guys that are at the very top generally don't want to live it again because it was such an intense period. They had to operate at the very height of existence almost, like the intensity of being under that amount of pressure for that long. They don't want it again. They're happy with what they did. I totally agree. And that's why I'm sure all three of us would happily go back to 1990 because we haven't been operating at those levels. <laughs> um, it was a genuine pleasure to get Andy Bramer to answer our questions. Thank you so much to him and his agent, Philip, for doing that for us because um, they could have easily at any point told us to F off and they'd have been well within their rights. Well, there was a point There was a point when I was arranging an international bank transfer and I thought, have we been, is this our Ali Dyer? Are we getting absolutely scammed <laughs> yeah. here by someone? Are we getting absolutely scammed? For, let's be honest, less money than Andy Bramer should be being paid for the interview. <laughs> like, have <laughs> we been catfished by Andy Bramer? Is this not Andy Bramer on Instagram? It's a man who poses at him in the hope that foreign football podcasts We'll pay him quite a measly sum to answer some questions. <laughs> Imagine if he said when he took the penalty, if he'd answered like Peter Shilton when it came to saving penalties, and Andy Bramer said, when you're taking a penalty, go make sure you lead with your head and your foot. <laughs> uh, Andy, we've caught you out. You're not really real, Andy. What, what do you think would have happened if Bramer's technique was to wait until the goalkeeper had moved and Shilton's was to wait until the penalty taker had... Do you think they'd still be there now. Um, thank you to Andy. Thank you to uh, Philip. If you are a footballer who is second language English, but would be happy to answer questions in that long form, we will accept you as a guest on this show. Presuming you've won at least one World Cup. Thank you very much. Uh, I think we've learned a lot about Andy Bramer, a lot about German football that we didn't know. Most of all, let us all remember that from now on, Rudy Villa will be nicknamed Auntie Cake. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Have we just got time for the quiz? Yeah, why not? Quick quiz. We've been sent one in. So here we go. This week's quiz is from Sam King. Are you two up for playing this? Yes. Hi, chaps. Hope all is well. I have a quiz that you can play at the end of the upcoming episode. It's simple and hopefully fun. Eight quotes. Four from Sir Alex Ferguson. Four from Benito Mussolini. (laughs) (laughs) All Chris and Michael have to do is figure out Who said which one? For each, do you want to go first or second? I'll go first. Quote number one. Once you bid farewell to discipline, you say goodbye to success. That's got to be Mussolini. Ferguson or Mussolini? That's got to be Mussolini. Incorrect, it's Ferguson. The hard part is to keep people at the window because of the spectacle you put on for them. And you must do this for years. Ferguson or Mussolini, Michael? I'm going to say Mussolini. Correct, 1-0 to Michael. Journalism is not a profession, but a mission. Uh, Mussolini. Correct, one all. Once you shake hands with the devil, you have to accept they are in control. I think that sounds like something Fergie would say about agents, so I'm going to say Fergie. 
Correct. Oh. 2-1. I've got a temper if I need it. Nothing wrong with losing your temper if it's for the right reasons. I mean, on the face of it, that's definitely Ferguson. But So I'm going to say Ferguson. Correct. It's 2-all. Michael with a, a quote in hand. This is the epitaph I want on my tomb. Here lies one of the most intelligent animals who ever appeared on the face of the earth. Well, I can't imagine Fergie saying tomb, so I'm, I'm going to say Mussolini. <laughs> it's 3-2 to Michael. Oh. Chris, you need this. Yeah, this needs to go in. I remember the first time... <laughs> I remember the first, first time, time I, I saw... Hitler. I remember the first time I saw Ryan Giggs play. <laughs> he was 13, <laughs> floating over the ground like a fucking spaniel, chasing a piece of paper in the wind. Yeah, I don't know if you know Chris... Mussolini used to be our head scout, just in case you need that info. <laughs> Fergie? Correct. It's oh. real. Michael, to win this. I've been a racist since 1921. <laughs> 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 Fergie Mussolini to win it. Well, I'm tempted to get it wrong for the draw, but I also don't want to libel Alex Ferguson. So yeah, I I, I'm going to say Mussolini. Right. And takes all around. Well done. You win. Thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, what what a guest to have on. Uh, what a further chapter to the Peter Shilton story. Let's be honest. It's a glorious period for Quickly Kevin at the moment, and it's a pleasure to be a part of it. Michael, how would you like to end the episode? Uh, I think there's only one way. I'm going to play us out with the uh, the German national anthem. Until next time, Robbie Slater. See you later. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.